Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. Strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And, and then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to jail. Ladies and gentlemen of America, what is going on when innocent men get locked away? Ladies and gentlemen, have you stopped to ask the question, where is justice? It's far away. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Um, uh, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. There you have it. Tough questions in need for answers. Lady Justice has gone missing. Where is she? Is this happening in America? The American dream has turned into a nightmare. Crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight we deal with the topic of the IRP5 story and those that are writing facts and those that have fabricated lies. We're going to deal with that tonight as we break down step by step where the corruption started and then where the allies have shown up for the IRP5. Folks, hang on. This is AJC Radio. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, Sapson Riddle, William Williams, the entire AJC Radio team tonight. And we are happy to have the IRP5 back in studio addressing these issues that I'll tell you what, it's going to take a while to get through all that has happened, but tonight we dig even deeper 
and to the conspiracy and corruption of the wrongful conviction of the IRP-5. And uh, we're happy to be here tonight. And Dennis, as we get into this again, uh, picking up, we can't leave out Colorado Springs Fellowship Church targeted. Uh, they are throughout this narrative that we have to present uh, because without that, uh, we wonder where things would be today. This was a calculated, a sought out, a planned opportunity uh, for the government of the United States to take action. Uh, it's important that we get the story out. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, of course, we talked about it last week, and we uh, talked about how, you know, they actually got, went into church uh, uh, records, uh, looked at things that had nothing to do with the IRP uh, 5K, and it's just sad how, you know, you take that power and use that power to manipulate and to try to find out, try to find a case. And the sad thing was that you used the church to do it. And that's sad. We have uh, the government actually going into church records and disregarding the separation of state and church. Uh, we got some major problems. And tonight, uh, as we talk, uh, you're going to hear that from the RP5 and how they discuss how, you know, they took that and tried to use it as a way in uh, to bring these guys down. But I tell you, uh, it, it didn't work. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, we're going to bring it out, make sure everybody understands that there has to be a separation and then there has to be consequences uh, when the government does that. And that's why we're trying to get this out so that people can speak out against this uh, injustice. Oh, absolutely right. And Dave, uh, David uh, from the RP5, give us your thoughts. Uh, I know we're going to be sharing uh, the Adam Dame story, his perspective, a writing that he did, uh, but also the lies and really the premeditated, uh, what do you call it, premeditated, really criminal acts, I would call it, of taking the Tom Lee of the U.S. Observer, uh, ended up doing some things that should not have been done. Go into that a little bit for us, David. Yeah, Ron Lee uh, works for a company called the U.S. Observer. Uh, their claim to fame is that they help the innocent uh, and they look at cases, find out if you're innocent. They also claim that they're big constitutional hawks, uh, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, in fact, Mr. Ron Lee, a reporter who uh, claimed he was going to do an investi a true investigation into the IRP case, became a government shield. He did nothing but promote the government's narrative. Uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, all the stuff he wrote pretty much, okay, uh, the IRP-6 and the IRP-5 are nothing but a bunch of fraudsters. They're guilty. Well, uh, former federal appeals judge H. Lee Sarakin exhaustively, exhaustively reviewed the case as well. He didn't come to that conclusion. I think he might be able to know a little more about the law and the facts of this case than Mr. Uh, Ron Lee of The Observer uh, could possibly know, and he also knows the law. Mr. Lee obviously does not know the law. He doesn't believe that people should be given a fair trial and that all the facts should be brought before a jury, uh, much of which didn't, didn't happen here. Uh, Mr. Lee also claims he's a, a constitutional hawk. If you read uh, his bio and you read The Observer, that they're so concerned about the Constitution. Yet in his reporting, uh, he, never, he, he never even mentioned uh, the constitutional violations that H. Lee Sarakin mentioned, as well as the ones that were filed as, as a part of a bill, these are, these are irrefutable. They're inarguable. These constitutional violations happen. Uh, I guess Ron Lee's like many other uh, uh, 
people out there think, think that African-Americans should be running a landscaping company or a janitorial company and not a software company because I guess us African-Americans, us blacks, it really isn't uh, good enough in Mr. Mr. Lee's obvious opinion to be running a software company. Uh, if, if he doesn't understand, the, he didn't understand the staffing industry, his, his entire uh, reporting was completely false and nothing more, he functioned as nothing more than a shield for the government and, and promote the government narrative. He put the transcript out there. Obviously, he didn't read the transcript, and he knows nothing about the law. And we're going to be digging into uh, some of his uh, ridiculous claims, and we will knock each and every one of them down in the upcoming uh, weeks and prove uh, that Mr. Ron Lee was nothing but a fraud and a shield for the government. And, David, to your point about, you know, the other people who have come forward and say, hey, there was no crime here, you mentioned uh, – former appellate judge H. Lee Serkin, we have Harry Silver, I mean, uh, Harvey Silverglade, who, if you know anything about uh, politics and law, Harvey Silverglade is a lion as far as the law is concerned. He looked at this case and said the government came up with a crime that never existed. We have uh, numerous uh, former U.S. prosecutors. We have former journalists. Uh, lawyers. We had Sidney Powell come on the show, says, hey, there was no crime here. We've had other formal judges. We had uh, Andrew Alvarelli, who is a CEO of a software company for 20 years, that says what IRP Solutions did is that is how the industry works. And for uh, the government to come in and turn that into a crime makes absolutely no sense. So, uh, Mr. Lee, we only put the mystery on your name just to try to be nice to you, but bottom line, you have no idea what you were talking about. If all these other people said there was no crime, this should never have gone before a judge, how did you end up coming to the conclusion that you came to, especially after you ripped off the families of uh, the IRP Solutions executives and ripped off a, a, a small church? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Well. Go ahead, David. I think one important point that we made, they made that Mr. Lee took $10,000 uh, for his so-called investigative fees and then wrote uh, a rag that was nothing more than, a, like I said, a government gossip rag. Uh, so that's what, equivalent to what he wrote, and he uh, decided he was going to take $10,000 from us. You want to talk about fraud? That's a, that's a little bit of fraud right there. Well, look. Uh, we're going to get into that on the other side of the break as well. Here's the bottom line. What Mr. Lee did was basically uh, really take advantage of the most vulnerable people in this situation, the families of the IRP5, and told them basically, uh, look, I want to do the right thing by the IRP5. I believe in their story, their innocence. Can somebody tell me why in the world would the IRP5 families pay $10,000? for you to badger and to really slander and go against everything you actually came in talking about what you wanted to do. We don't have to pay nobody any money to, to, to put us down and to really uh, put us in a horrible light in the public. Why would we have to do that? That tells you his motives and his intentions were to, was one thing, and that's to get this money. He played the game. Oh, we care. I want to know for the right thing. And you went and saw said some very uh, horrific things, false, basic lies 
uh, about this story and about these guys. And as David alluded to, former federal judge H. Lee Sarakin uh, came to a different conclusion. And like many others, and, and Mr. Bean, uh, correct, uh, we're going to be going over what he had to say about the IRP-5, what his position was and what conclusions that he came to. And I'll tell you right now, none of them, none of them come close to being anywhere on the same page uh, with uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Ron Lee. It's, it's just not the case. We are going to expose that. We're going to go, again, step by step, folks. This is some serious pre-calculations uh, that ended up robbing these men of their freedom, separation for their families of about eight years. It's our voice. To, it's our, excuse me. It's our position is to lift our voice. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Feel free to call in. This is the other side of the break, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Because I'm 16, I can't drive at night. Because I'm 16, I can't work past 10 o'clock on a school night. Because I'm 16, I can't get a cell phone contract without my parents. Because I'm 16, I can't get a flu shot without my mother's consent. At 16, I'm not old enough to watch an R-rated movie alone. Because I'm 16, I can't buy a lottery ticket. I can't vote. I can't drink. I can't smoke. I can't join the military. Because I'm 16, I can't sit on a jury, but I can be tried as an adult. I can get a lifetime criminal record. If I get arrested, my parents don't have to be notified. Because I'm 16, my mother had to sign this consent form so that I could participate in this video. But I can go to an adult prison. But I can go to Rikers Island. But I can be sent to Attica. My name is Michael Corriero. I was a judge for 28 years in the criminal courts of the state of New York. New York is one of only two states in the entire nation that it automatically tries children as young as 16 as adults. We need to change that. Last week, my father sent me to my room. Next week, a judge could sentence me to an adult prison. We need to judge children as children. It's time to raise the age of criminal responsibility in New York. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are 
our future. When news and headlines following an act of gun violence fade away, who's left? The families. Gun violence is real. It affects more people than you would ever imagine. Losing a family member is one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through. This is something that's often forgotten, like what happens to the people after the incident. Although our country struggles to agree on a long-term solution to gun violence, we can all agree on one thing. Any family suffering a loss as a result of gun violence needs our support. The focus needs to shift to the human being. These continue to happen, and more people have join the club that we didn't ask to be a part of. There's families that are not getting the help that they need. It seems like there's nobody really rallying around the people who have experienced the hardship that we have. So many families in need, and I can really empathize with that. They need our love, compassion, and hope. Life for these families may not get any easier. Their lives are never going to be the same, ever. But with the support of others, they will get stronger. We can help. The Christina Grimmy Foundation, building a legacy of hope and inspiration. Please have a seat. I'll be honest. Your resume, I don't want to miss you. I know. Okay, so what would you bring to my company? What do you need? I need a hard worker. Good. I've got two part-time jobs and I help my parents pay the bills. I need problem-solving skills. I got through high school without a car, a phone, or a computer. No college degree, though. Not yet, but life's taught me a lot and I'm ready for more. Well, you're not the typical kind of candidate that I hire. But you are exactly what I'm looking for. Your company could be missing out on the candidates it needs most. Learn how to find, cultivate, and train a great pool of untapped talent at gradsoflife.org. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because they don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where tonight we continue the story of the IRP-5. Make no mistake about it, this is not a production uh, of any kind. This is real life that happened to these five men, uh, their families, and spending almost eight years 
uh, in federal prison for a crime that they did not commit. And we're going to get into that story tonight, as well, along with uh, Alan Bean. His, uh, his reporting was outstanding. Uh, we're going to get into that conversation and also, again, address the uh, step-by-step of why did Alan Bean come to the conclusion that he came to. And as he wrote this article, uh, he was very much compelled to do so based upon the truth. And you're going to hear a lot of that tonight, and uh, we're going to get into that. David, uh, some of the first things for, for Alan Bean that he began uh, to, to really break down, I'd like you to kind of take our listeners step by step as we go in this dialogue, uh, and then we'll discuss each section that we actually get to. And again, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to dial in tonight, 646 uh, as we begin uh, to get into the details of this story. Go ahead, David. Uh, first, we'll start off with a little background. Dr. Alan Bean is a well-known advocate, justice, uh, justice advocate uh, based in Texas. Uh, he's the executive director of the Friends of Justice and very well-known uh, in the advocacy and wrongful conviction and civil rights uh, community. Now, Alan, Mr. Bean, conducted a six-month investigation. We talked about the observer. He didn't conduct such an investigation. And Mr. Ron Lee, the observer, he conducted a six-month investigation. He spoke to us while we were incarcerated. Uh, he uh, spoke to our families. He spoke to people who worked at the business. That's that's what an investigation is. Then, uh, after conducting a, a thorough, comprehensive, exhaustive six-month investigation. Then Mr. Bean issued his findings in a report titled Money for Nothing, How Racial Bias Destroyed Six Lives, Stymied a Black-Owned Business, and Outraged a Congregation. Uh, Another conclusion being, because he actually investigated the case, independently investigated the case, not a government shield like Mr. Lee of The Observer, he said the fingerprints of racial bias were visible to the naked eye. And being also, his investigation also concluded that the federal government prosecutors concocted a bogus, quote, bogus business theory, unquote, uh, to win the, this unconstitutional conviction against the innocent. I will say again, the innocent IRP-6, uh, we did nothing wrong. Now, another fact that we want want to uh, discuss is that Bean findings were confirmed by H. Lee Sarakin. Now, again, I'm going to keep just making uh, passing references to Mr. Ron Lee, who was a government shill and wrote a very uh, inaccurate uh, report on, on our case, on our innocence, and claims, well, you guys are just guilty. The gov- he put the transcript out there. Well, anytime Mr. Lee wants to get together and talk about the transcript, we can do that. Um, and then, as I said, uh, Mr. Bean's findings in his report, which uh, a just cause will post if it's not already on their website at the conclusion of this show. Uh, H. Lee Sarakin, these are his words to the Washington Post. What amazed me about the IRP-6 case, Sarakin told the Washington Post, was the theory of the government. 
that this software program they were developing was a scam. Serkin went on to say all, I, I repeat, all the proof in the case goes the opposite way. Mr. Ron Lee, how did you draw a different conclusion when all the proof went the other way? Um, so as we get into what the government did, um, even they didn't have a case. So the goal was, well, again, like we discussed in, in a previous show, we'll use the church and try this, to throw mud against the wall and see what's going to stick. Started with money laundering that uh, the people who worked for the church and Bean uh, addressed this in his report. Uh, yeah, we hired people to work at the church. We hired staffing companies to take them on. There's nothing unusual about it. It happens every day in the industry. Uh, did we... At, uh, Mr. Lee at one point discussed, uh, well, they build themselves. Yeah, that's called a billable consultant. Mr. Lee, you don't know what you're talking about. A billable consultant is when CEOs, COOs build themselves out on projects. That was legitimate. There was nothing untoward about it. We did nothing wrong we committed no crimes. And Mr. Bean points that out. He goes through in very thorough fashion, uh, gets into the, the, the church angle, uh, the government's bogus business theory, uh, the behavior of the prosecutors and the judge, the bias that was displayed. And he put out a, an accurate report based on actual records from the trial transcript. And from documents, just don't read the transcript. It looks like Mr. Uh, Lee read the transcript and only the government side of the transcript, everything else. He didn't confirm whether or not we were telling the truth. If he had, he would have wrote a very different story instead of serving as a shield for the government. No, absolutely right. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mr. Bean really, uh, as, you, as David alluded to, did extensive research. Uh, investigate true investigative reporting uh, and you find that as, as we talked about earlier uh, where the church became a target a religious institution and mr. Bean writes the following statement he says all six RP executives were members of Colorado Springs Fellowship Church chief operating officer David Banks is the son of pastor Rose Banks and this is how he describes it a charismatic powerhouse who founded the church in 1978, while her husband, Charles, was a senior non-commissioned officer in Germany. And he goes further to talk about anyone familiar with the Pentecostal worship experience would feel right at home at Colorado Springs Fellowship Church. The music type contemporary rhythmic is performed with uh, a true virtuoso, uh, I believe is what he says here. Pastor Banks, as she usually calls, Praise for the sick, stresses the importance of, of the baptism of the Spirit, but the basic thrust of the ministry is love in action. What does that tell you? Now, with all of this, everybody had an opinion primarily about Colorado Springs Fellowship Church. And the reason that opinion was formed, it was the really unethical behavior and lies. Not only with Matthew Kirsch, uh, AUSA, but Judge Arguello, which we've talked last week, 
was very prejudiced and biased against uh, this church. So, David, when you talk about uh, Alan Bain and what he saw, he didn't see anything that was unusual at the church. He see at, and it, this guy just, as, as a result of his investigative reporting, these are the conclusions that he came to. I think this is why it is so troubling when you hear about this judge, this prosecutor, and then the lies of Ron Lee against these guys. It's just it's, it's some type of fairy tale fabrication or theory that the prosecution set out to do for, for one reason, to destroy the lives of these men. I'm trying to figure out what motivates a person to do that. That's what I'm trying to figure out. So if you got these guys that Alan B says, look, these guys are exactly what H- federal judge H. Lee Sarkin said. That's why he really pressed to get the letter to President Obama to say in all of his years, he has never seen an injustice on this level. Does that not, uh, does that not count for something? David. Well, and uh, uh, Lamont brought the church back into it now. To give you a little background on that, the government didn't have a case. So it, it launched on a fraudulent theory that the church members, and I'm going to read a little bit from Alan Bean, and we'll see tell you what his findings are. Alan Bean writes, although half of the information technology contractors working at IRP had no relation to Rose Banks's church, And companies that work with intellectual property tend to hire professionals they know and trust, and IRP was no exception. What Bean was saying, if you know somebody, it's about who you know. And people hire people they know. It's called networking. So somebody says, well, would you hire this person? I know this person. I'll hire that person. Or I know them directly. I'll hire that person. The government's claim was that, okay, well, you guys are hiring these church members, in essence, just to get kickbacks that's a that's a theory that he had no evidence whatsoever to back up in in an effort to obtain or get the evidence or or support his theory he uh went into church banking records without a subpoena um that is clear that was litigated in court and so he decided to use the church as a sword and as, as a predicate for bringing charges against us, but that didn't work out. A grand juror in that grand jury that he attempted to indict us on these trumped up money laundering charges said what Judge Sarakin said, we had been indicted and in prison for failing to pay debt. A grand juror actually asked, but if I don't pay somebody for the work they've done, that's not a federal crime. AUSA Kirsch was unable to get an indictment with that grand jury, prompting him to retool his FBI agent and then impanel another grand jury years later and only call an FBI agent. He didn't want to know the truth. He didn't want to call any real witnesses because it would go against what he was really trying to do. So just from the outset, uh this is shows that his motives were not clean 
and he was a, a rogue prosecutor seeking a wrongful conviction for some, whether he's motivated by money, I just don't know. It just, race, was he motivated by race? We just don't know what what really motivated him. Or was he being paid by some large corporation or, or some? We just don't know. But we do know there was no crime committed. He knows the crime wasn't committed or he wouldn't have had such a hard time trying to come up with a theory because uh, the proof would have been in the pudding. The facts would have been in the record. They were not there. He had to manufacture, scheme, and do whatever he had to do to get us convicted. And, and the bottom line with that is, is that that gives you a little bit of an, of an indication. And I think that's why people are so uh, in a point of disbelief that the RP5 men went into a courtroom pro se because the lawyers they had were dipping their hands in the same pot that the government was. So if you look at the transcripts, go back to the record of trial, these men, when I tell you presented a case, they should have won. But you had a biased judge and you had a biased prosecutor. And to David's point, was it the fact these were uh, mostly minority men? And because they'd come up with something that it was said, they've never seen nothing like it before. The law enforcement, uh, the demos and things that were put on in Washington, D.C. said, we've never seen nothing like it. How is it that there were other companies that were given a task to try to come up with something, but this came down to, to, to the IRP-5 to make that happen? Dave, go ahead. Well, a couple of things. One of the things David was bringing up the fact of the grand juries. I was the only member of the IRP-5 that was called to testify at the grand jury. I'm the only white member of the IRP-5. Now, in the grand jury, I brought a, a, a notebook full of evidence showing our innocence. When I tried to give that to the grand jury, the prosecutor tried to usher me out of the room. So I had to say to the grand jury, does anybody want to see this evidence? Finally, one grand juror said, I want to see it, and they had to give it to them. That was a problem. How are you ushering somebody out the door when they want to bring evidence of their innocence? And then second of all, Lamont was just bringing up the fact of, here we are, we're just a little company that is going up against these big guys for this software. Well, in Alan Bean's report, when he talked to me, he said, how did a small company think they could go up against their, uh, they, these big companies? And one of the things that we did, and I was over the testers, is I brought in people that had no idea what the software did and weren't used to using computers. So we would go through and just say, test it. They didn't know what they were testing, but we wanted to make sure this was the most ease of use product out there. And that's one of the uh, highlights that we saw when we were demonstrating the product, that anybody could use it without having to go to a training class or read a manual. Well, that's what, if, if I'm not mistaken, which separated the RP5. They make it as user friendly. That and this is this is why you are just baffled. These men set out to protect a nation. That's what they set out to do. It's like anybody else gets up in the morning, goes to work, work hard, do the best you can, and to be blindsided know anything about a blind side you didn't see it coming because we all were taught to believe 
do the right thing, there are no issues. Ladies and gentlemen, the IRP5 did one thing. They set out, they embraced the entrepreneur spirit and wanted to be successful in what they did, and they were attacked for it. That's what happened. And that is the most insane thing. I, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. William, your thoughts on that? You know, the thing about it is they were never actually given the opportunity to present anything. I, I think when I look at this, I look at the fact that how, you know, they really didn't get to, they, got, they represented themselves and represented themselves well. They were not able to put together the defense because of the way the court led them um, and didn't allow certain things to be presented. And that's one of the things that's always bothered me about it. You know, when you sit there and you watch it, they were not able to give a proper defense. And even to Dave's point, you know, how you're standing there and with the grand jury, you have evidence in hand. And, you know, this is what you were facing. You were, it's like the deck, the deck was stacked against you. And, um, you know, that's the thing that really always bothers me about the case. Well, the problem you have here is that if the criminal justice system would operate in all fairness. This is what I was told that the, this is how the system is supposed to work. Two sides come in with the theory of a case. It is the judge's job before this ever went to trial. Now in the state courts, and I'm not sure if how federal, maybe somebody can tell me that, but there's usually some type of preliminary hearing where the judge decides, okay, we have sufficient evidence to probably go forward with a prosecution or with a case. At that time, the judge has the power to say, you know what? There's, there's no there here. There's nothing here. The judge's job is to simply make that decision. And when you, when you talk to all the people that are just called to talk to, where's the crime? We can't find a crime. These are lawyers. These are people familiar with the field. And when you talk about that, when Mr. Bean asked Kendrick, uh, uh, Dave, I believe you, you know, he asked you that Dave Zapolo uh, made the reference that what made you guys think you could go up these, go against these big companies? You know why? Because we believed in our product. That's why. You believe in something, no giants out there, no matter who they are, the work that went into what you guys did every single day and night, what you guys did. You reward us with all types of lies and credibility issues. I, I'm, it, this is why when you hear it, no matter, no matter how many times you hear it, it is troubling. It is troubling. Go ahead, Dave. Sobolo. And while we were in trial, one of the things that they kept bringing up is that we hired unskilled labor. And that was, that was done on purpose to make this software work better. And while we were in prison, I actually read an article in the Wall Street Journal that told companies, you need to hire people that don't know anything about your company because they're going to make your company better. That's what we were doing. We were doing that in the early 2000s, and they put us in prison for it because they brought it up in, in jail and uh, brought it up during trial and made us look like we were doing something wrong. Unbelievable. David, thanks. Uh, uh, now, they call, now, in the industry, they call that dummy testing. So you want to make sure that the most naive, uh, most basic user can sit down, 
use the software and find their way through it. This is, and there were a lot of people. We needed a group, at least a few people that could test software that, that didn't have the computer acumen of people with more user, uh, expert user skills and, and technology background. And that is, uh, William, you had a thought? Yeah, I, I was just going to piggyback on that because that is one thing that's critical and was critical about the process in which um, this software was developed. That's why when people saw it, they were in awe of it because of the, the amount of work that went into making that product better. Every, every day, these guys were ba- basically putting it to the test and making it better. How can we make it better? And that's and basically what David's talking about. Both Dave and David are talking about is what we see in in industries usability test. So when uh, you put it in front of somebody that has no idea, and if it allows them to work and go through that process cleanly, then all of a sudden they're sitting there saying, "Wow, this is a really great tool." That's why when this when people saw the software, that was their impression. They were like, "Wow, we've never seen anything like it." Because the amount of work and effort that went into testing it, improving it, making it better, these guys were constantly working on it. And I was there. I mean, I'm firsthand watching what was going on. Everybody just minds cranking on how to make this thing better. And then when you think about it, they were rewarded for their good. I mean, each one of them was motivated to make it better, to help industry, to help law enforcement. And this is how they were paid. Well, what's what's so concerning, I'll say it again, folks. How do you how do you criminalize uh, such efforts? I, I, I don't listen. You know why that's never going to make sense to me? Because it's not supposed to make sense. How is it that these men, all five of you, work night and day? These are these are men of integrity. They, they put in. I mean, these I are. This is this is what we call sweat equity in industry. You would you would see. I mean, there's no value to it. These guys believed in what they believed in, and they put every ounce of energy into it. Now, to your point, Lamont, I, I look at this, and you we're in this IT driven age. You look at the Zuckerbergs, you look at the Bezos, you look at the Cooks, you look at all these guys that are out here. They're leading billion dollar trillion dollar companies they're putting in so much to it and and we play around with a lot of toys what these guys had was a product that was going to make us safer you know that's one of the things we we always talk about it was going to make our country safe we we're getting ready to come up on 9-11 again and we're no safer today than we were when it happened this software was intended to do just that and these guys, you know, I mean, this is this is the significant to me. It's the significance of the story. We were well, going to be made safer with the problem. Well, look, AUSA Matthew Kirsch, uh, Judge Christine Arguello, let me put this out to our listeners tonight and all that will hear this show. I received a phone call today to a just cause from someone who began to tell me he suffered abuse at the hand of AUSA Matthew Kirsch. Uh, He is going to be coming on this show in the next week or so. And he said he came across a Just Cause press release in regards to the conduct of 
officers, if you will, of the court. This man, when I tell you I was moved by his story, and he said, anything I can do, whatever I can do to help, he said, but I can tell you right now that Matthew Kirsch was a man that is a very bad person. Uh, his case ended up getting overturned uh, on, on a rare appeal. I'm going to let him tell the story. I'm not going to go into it, but stay tuned, folks. And if anybody out there listening tonight has been done wrong by AUSA Matthew Kirsch, uh, then U.S. Attorney John Walsh, uh, Federal Judge Christine Arguello, contact a just cause. You can go to our website and, and check us out. Our contact information is there. Give us a call, and we will let your voice be heard on this program and to our listeners all around the United States and around the world. On the other side of the break, we're coming back. Uh, David Banks is going to dig a little deeper uh, with the Friends of Justice and Alan Beam, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Clint Stewart. I'll tell you what, they all got a lot to say. We're going to get to them on the other side of this break. This is AJC Radio. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? 
The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, rehabilitation costs less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. No law. Respecting an establishment. Uh, religion. Or prohibiting the free exercise. Thereof. Or abridging the freedom of speech. Or of the press. Or the right. Of the people. 
peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight. I'm Lamont Banks, along with the entire AJC Radio team, along with the IRP5 tonight. As we begin to get into the facts of the IRP5 story, and really the baffling thing here, no matter how many times you hear it, no matter how many times you read it, you are blown away at the outcome, if you will, of the IRP5 Eight years in federal prison for doing one thing, creating software to keep the homeland safe. There's no logic to that. Uh, We deal with the corrupt practices of AUSA Matthew Kirsch. Let's not leave out former U.S. Attorney John Walsh, uh, who was the kingpin of this thing. And anybody else, federal judge Christine Arguello, as you begin to hear the friends of justice, and David's going to dig even more further into that as he begins to paint a picture, and the RP5 guys paint this picture, that these guys simply were set out to destroy these men without a cause. You think someone would have a motive. What, what motive would be for you to bring these men down at any cost and at any lie and at any uh, collusion with the federal judge? Uh, Christina Aguero, without question, these are people that came together uh, and did what they did. And uh, it is our job to, to really turn the pages back and get into this story. Sebson, as what you've heard thus far, I'm telling you, I'm sitting here tonight equally as blown away as if it's the first time I've heard it. Well, no, it's actually just dumbfounding, you know, to, to think that we have supposedly educated people that sit on the bench educated people that go and are supposed to represent the law of this country, yet they were somehow found a crime or fabricated a crime that these men supposedly committed. I mean, it's absolutely unreal. All evidence, everything brought to the table pointed the exact opposite. These men were innocent. There was no crime. I mean, even the experts that, you know, some of the gentlemen have already talked about this evening saying there was no crime committed. Judge, Judge Sarakin, 60-plus years on the bench, no crime. In-depth research by a man who, ha- who has literally ha- had a career where he didn't offer any type of – or recommend any type of clemency, any type of anything for anybody. But here he comes out speaking on the behalf of the then IRP-6 saying, there is no crime. What are you doing? And yet Judge Arguello, Matthew Kirsch, and everyone else that was involved fabricated something because these men were ready to take on the IT giants of the industry at that time. Well, the problem you have with that, the IT giants wasn't doing anything. They, they had failed at what they were told. Uh, and Cliff, you know about this. Uh, I believe Congress uh, basically empowered uh, and, and taxpayer dollars went into a software. I believe it's, I don't, uh, Cliff, what was the software that, that Congress had said that failed. Was it the virtual uh, case file? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was that was one of those things that uh, uh, 
So while they want to sit back and, and say, well, what are these guys doing? Well, you're not doing your job. It's not happening. It's not happening. Okay? And so it's one of those things that is very troubling to me that these things are happening and our criminal justice system, make no mistake about it, the RP5 are not the only ones that have suffered uh, at the hands of this, of this system. So what about the families, the people that went to prison that should have never went? Man, the numbers are astronomical. And how long do judges and prosecutors get away with this behavior if nobody speaks out about it? They continue to abuse the power. They continue to abuse the bench. David, go ahead. Yeah, um, that's when you're talking. Uh, it came back to me when I said we continue to break down this case. The observer just didn't do any type of investigation. Um, the The reality is we were playing with a stack deck and the system is set up to be for us to be working with against the stack deck. People don't understand there's so much depth to this story and how the government went in and tried to minimize our software and our company to make it, to make it look like we were peddling vaporware and at the most desktop software that couldn't be used for uh, major law enforcement agencies. Well, it's, it's unreasonable to think that we were able to dupe the FBI. We were able to dupe the Department of Homeland Security and the NYPD into thinking we had good software. Uh, these, these are not stupid people. They, did, they, they, they have software in there, and they use software. Our software, and, and furthermore, we use former federal agents former NYPD in helping with subject matter expertise of law enforcement process and procedures so we could properly incorporate them into a flexible framework that can be used and adapted to by any particular agency. And one final note, and these, these are facts that, that people don't know. We had teaming agreements with major uh billion-dollar companies to go after business with the NYPD. We were working specifically with Deloitte at the time we had signed a teaming agreement with them to go after business at the NYPD based on our product. This was not vaporware. This was enterprise-class software that could have changed uh, the face of law enforcement. It could have eased uh, their investigative process and overall just made our nation and our law enforcement better all the way around. So let me ask you guys a question and we'll just go down the line here. It's hard to try to come up with why. Uh, why are these men the target? Why, as David just alluded to, these guys were uh, creating software, working with law enforcement. You would think people would jump on board, especially at the time, and we saw later as the years progressed, uh, the threat of ISIS, the threat of these terrorist groups across the country, it became very bad. And they went as far as to say there were active sales in the United States for ISIS. So what is that? What tells me? But because of egos not checked at the door, 
Is it worth filling American lives in body bags? Or do we say, look, these guys have something. Man, my children are going to be safe. My grandchildren are going to be safe. Does that matter? Does human life matter? Or do we worry about, because this is an African-American group of men, one Italian-American, and guess what? We don't want, we don't want to uh, communicate with you. We don't want to give you the credit for doing what you've done. While body bags continue to be filled, while terrorist acts continue to be done on this nation, this vision of the IRP-5, make no mistake about it, started at ground zero in New York City. That was the, uh, the pivoting point to these men to say, you know what? We have to do something. And William said it best. This was a lot of work, nights in, nights out, sleepless nights, all trying to do something that was good. And the government comes in and blindsides these men with a corrupt judge, Christine Arguello, with no ethical meter reading at all, simply continue to abuse our power from the bench. From day one, when this case went to court, the abuse started. David. Zappolo, your thoughts? Well, one of the things that I think is when you look at this, we were going to make a lot of really big companies look bad. In Alan Bean's report, he talks about in a recent interview, FBI Chief Technology Officer Jack Israel explained why industry giants like IBM, SAIC, Dynacorp, and Lockheed Martin have repeatedly failed to deliver usable investigative and intelligence software to government agencies. Well, if they were unable to uh, deliver that, and we, a small black company, were able to do it, we would make every single one of them look bad. And then it comes back on us that they, they decide we can't let that happen, and we end up in prison. No, for sure. And uh, Cliff, if you can do me a favor, share with our listeners the process, even in Congress, when they, we talked about the virtual, uh, what, sorry? Case file. Tell us a little bit about that. What happened with that? What Congress was trying to basically they gave money uh, for these guys to do it and, and it failed. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Well, and uh, David, you can chime in as well. But the bottom line is when the virtual case file was paid for, I think at the tune of $385 million, that was basically lost, uh, squandered by SAIC. And the, the, the American people got nothing for that money. And um, Bob Mueller, the, Robert Mueller, the uh, FBI um, director at that time, stood before Congress and told them, and anybody who was around at that time that saw that, it was shocking, amazing, appalling, disgusting. The, every adjective you could use for waste, fraud, and abuse of American taxpayer money because he stood before Congress and told them, yes, the money was spent. We have nothing to share to show for it. How many of those executives at SAIC were even indicted, even had to pay uh, retributions for the taxpayer money that they lost? Nothing happened to them. But then you look at our piece solutions and you're like, okay, because they were in debt, you put them in prison. But a company that squandered away close to $400 million of taxpayer dollars, that company just gets a pass, and then they funded the, the next project, the Sentinel Project. 
so you're talking about almost a billion dollars that was wasted and the FBI still have nothing to show for. And this is Dave Banks. Uh, what happened, uh, virtual case file was, was created from the Congressional 9-11 Commission making findings after their investigation that uh, the antiquated FBI systems and their failure to share information through those systems contributed to the 9-11 attack. Uh, virtual case file was attempted by SAIC. It was up, actually upwards of $400 million. Uh, and then the Sentinel program, which was eight, another $825 million and counting. Uh, so you're coming up to over $1.2 billion spent. And uh, Jack Israel, who was the chief technology officer, told, uh, I believe it was federal government IT, I can't remember the exact publication, that the Sentinel project, which was the one they had spent $800 million on, failed when they tried to build an electronic case management system. That's where it failed. IRP Solutions, what we had built, was an electronic investigative case management system. There was a reason the government was looking closely at this software. This was their most difficult undertaking was to develop an investigative case management software. We took our times. We spoke to the experts. We built something that was extremely valuable and could be adapted to any agency's investigative process. So, uh, like I said, there's a lot to be said. There's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of money at play. And whenever there's a lot of money uh, on the line, there's corruption. And at the end of the day, people will do almost anything for money. And we believe that was part of the motivation to get rid of us so we couldn't compete and to just completely destroy our company. So uh, probably some big corporation could get the, com uh, could get the business. And there'll be a lot more to say on that. We have some uh, conduct by the prosecutor that we'll talk about later that, that, that will just, just shock the conscience. And right now, and David, good point on that. This thing has uh, so many arms to it. We're going to get to all of that. Right now, joining us is Robbie Starbuck, who is a true friend and ally, really, of a just cause and really passionate towards the IRP5. And I've had the privilege of meeting him and his, his wife, and uh, we're very happy. Mr. Starbuck, are you with us? Yes, I'm with you guys. How are you guys doing? Good, good Robbie. Good, 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 good to, to hear, hear from you. you. Good to hear your guys' voices. I'm so glad you guys are uh, are doing the show. Well, it's, it's just a true honor and privilege, Robbie. Uh, listen, I can't say thank you enough. I'm going to let all these guys say thank you to you. Uh, you've been a true champion uh, for the IRP5, and the hard work that you do, let me tell you, uh, at Yes Calls and AJC Radio can take some notes out of your playbook of how to really impact the lives of people. You've definitely done this with the IRP5. And let me say thank you first off. Uh, we appreciate all of your hard work and your enthusiasm uh, to hear this story and to get that message out. We appreciate it so very much. Oh, thank you, guys. I appreciate that a lot. That's, you guys don't have to say, uh, say thank you. Your guys' lives and your stories and, and everything, your guys' families, it's, it's worth it. You know, I mean, I think anybody in a position to be able to do anything about an injustice like this and uh, step in for another man or woman who's in a position where they've been wronged, you know, they, it's, it's your duty to do that. So um, I appreciate you guys. I'm just so glad you guys are out. 
No, absolutely, Rob. Thank you so much. Go ahead, David. And uh, this is Dave Banks here, Robbie. Uh, Wherever we get somebody to stand up, very few people want to stand up and say a federal prosecutor, a federal judge, even look at any sort of federal case that might even implicate wrongdoing of people uh, at that level in the justice system, especially the federal justice system. But uh, uh, all uh, respect and gratitude to you because wrong is wrong. Look, we we don't have uh, we're not anti-police. We're not anti-federal government. We're not anti-federal uh, law enforcement. But when people go rogue uh, and do things they shouldn't do and violate constitutional rights, somebody needs to stand. And very few people are, uh, have the courage or willingness to do that. And uh, that's where we're very grateful uh, uh, for your, your efforts uh, with regards to that. And like I said, we appreciate the time we spent on your show as well. Sure. Thank you so much. I loved having you guys on. Hey, good to hear from you, Robbie. This is uh, Demetrius Harper. We just want to say best wishes to you and Landon. We appreciate your uh, advocacy and standing and standing with us in this fight uh, in, against uh, these rogue prosecutors, these rogue uh, government agents. Uh, we lived it for the last uh, eight years, incarcerated, and uh, past that to 15 years from the, the time they raided our company. And we're still fighting the fight. And thank you for all you and Landon have done. Thank you. So we salute you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hey, Robbie, this is uh, Ken Barnes. Uh, I just want to echo the thanks from the rest of the guys. Um, This has been a long journey for us. And we've seen plenty of people who promise that, you know, they're going to uh, take our story and, and spread it over newspapers and documentaries and books. But, We've seen a lot of them get scared off once they see the gra- how big this is and the implications of it. A lot of people just don't want to touch it. So, I mean, to have someone like you to not only after, you know, we get out of prison to give us a chance to get on the air on your show and, and tell our side of the story. I mean, to us, that's huge. That's why we feel like an obligation to say thank you because we've had so many uh, disappointments and heartbreaks along the way just to have someone to believe in us. I mean, that, that goes – that can just go without, without saying. It's just a huge thing to us. And I just uh, want to echo again, thanks for, uh, for believing in us and giving us the opportunity to speak. You guys are Robbie, great. This is just absolutely great. This is David Zerpolo, and I want to echo everything everybody else is saying. It meant so much to us when we would hear that somebody supported us, especially while we were in prison, because you're there and – it is just a horrible experience and to know that you're there without cause and then you would hear somebody is supporting you somebody's out there getting your story out there it meant so much to us and then when we get out you had us on the show we were able to talk about our experience we were able to talk about the case it just is so much to us and i just want to say thank you thank you you know when you guys were still in there um you know, I had a moment too where my wife and I were talking about it one day and I said, you know, I just, I look at our kids and, and these men deserve to be looking at their kids. They deserve to be seeing them, their kids grow up and their families grow and their families, you know, go through hard times and good times. And they, they deserve that whole thing, you know? Um, and that's what, that's what inspired me to, to keep talking about you guys and to, you know, talk to people within the government that would listen and, and, uh, you know, do whatever I could to support you guys. Well, yeah. uh, this is Clint Stewart. Uh, Robbie, I ditto 
with everybody else and saying with you and Landon. And just like Ken has said, when we talk to people about our story, for some reason they fall off. When they hear about it and see how big it is, they, they, they back away, they get cold feet, they don't want to talk about it, what have you. But for you to uh, come out, have us on our show, have us, uh, us on your show, uh, which you asked me about uh, President Trump's uh, first step back and so forth, that was really big. It's a really big deal. We certainly thank you. And uh, uh, we just really appreciate uh, the time that you spent and support that you have for us. I appreciate you guys so much. You know, if you want, I could I could trade real quick and let Lana talk to you guys. She's a, she's on <laughs> on child duty, but I know she wanted to say hi to you guys. So let me let me grab her and let okay. her say hello to you all. I was listening too before I came on, and you guys you guys just so you know you do such a great job telling people nothing but what happened to you guys, and it's something you guys should be really proud of. Um, hey, Landon, they, they want to say hi to you too. Hi guys. Hello, Landon. Hi, Landon. Hello, Landon. How you doing? We're doing well. How are you, gentlemen? We're very, very well. Very like good. I said, as uh, Dave Banks talking here, as uh, we thank Robbie, we thank uh, your, uh, you guys' uh, unified support for us and everything that uh, you did to advocate on our behalf. And uh, let's let, let it be said that. Uh, Landon and Robbie are Trump supporters. Like I said, we as people can all, we can all get along. Uh, and uh, like we said, uh, Trump may say something that offends, may offend the average person, but at the end of the day, other politicians are saying a lot of offensive stuff as well. And uh, like I said, and they're getting nothing done. And they're getting nothing done. And we mm-hmm. don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We got, we got to look objectively at everything we do. And, uh, hey, I'm tired of the status quo, so uh, do I uh, – yeah, do I, does everything please me? No, everything doesn't please me, but nobody can please everybody, any, everybody all the time. But you got, you got to look through and, and get the best out of what, what people give you, and that includes the President of the United States. Well, definitely. So, uh, hey, Landon, this is Lamont Banks, Just Calls. I'll tell you this. Uh, I believe we became met or came together through the Clinton Stewart release video that was put on the internet. Uh, and I believe Robbie yeah. shared it, right? And that was yes. a big moment. Yes. That, that, that actually went viral. Three and a half million views. And Robbie Starbuck and Landon Starbuck's footprint was on that. So we were able to give definitely kudos to the president without them signing that first step back. Clint Stewart may not be out of here today. So you have to thank, you know, thankful for President Trump. He did something that a lot of people couldn't do. That's right. Trump did it. He said, look, if it hits my desk, I'm going to sign it. And that was a bipartisan thing that came together. You got to say thank you. And Robbie and, and Landon, let me tell you, that, that video is viral. Diamond and Silk ended up uh, sharing it as well. You guys were like the, the freight train man coming with that. And it impacted a lot of people. We can never say thank you thank enough you. for what you've done. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's, it's the least we can do. And, and we're just happy that, you know, it just goes to show everybody if one person. You never know the effect you're going to have with that one small act of consciousness and kindness. So, you know, that's, it's the very least any of us can do when we come across something or we, where we have a moment to choose right and wrong. We can make a difference. So, you know, I'm just so happy. Thrilled for you guys. Really am. Well, thank you so much, and I uh, hope you guys are not uh, working too hard. 
But what you've done, we are very impressed. Please know uh, our guys, uh, and if there's something we can say about uh, Robbie and Landon Starbuck on this show for anything you guys are promoting or pushing, uh, we're more than happy to join in the fight with you as well. So please leave that as an open-door invitation uh, to you and Robbie uh, at AJC Radio on a Just Cause. Oh, thank you guys so much. We're, we're so thrilled for you guys, and uh, congrats on your show, and we'll definitely be tuning in. Okay, thank you guys. Anything else, guys, before Landon goes? And Robbie? Just a heartfelt thank you. (laughs) Thank you, guys. All right. Go ahead, Robbie. You guys always have have a a special spot in our hearts and and appreciate you guys. Thank you. And and, uh, we we, uh, we echo that as well on this end, okay? Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. God bless y'all. All All right. Take care. Take care. There you have it, folks. Robbie and Landon, thank you so much. Uh, Robbie and Landon, Starbucks really powerhouses uh, in carrying the message of the IRP-5. And, Clint, I'll tell you, it came from a huge amount of people welcoming you home out that prison. And I tell you what, without President Trump, could not have happened. Very special thank you to him and to the Starbucks family. Go ahead, Clint. Absolutely. I really, you know, they asked, you know, how does it feel? I said, well, President Trump signed the First Step Act. We, We appealed to President Obama to do something for us. He couldn't help us. And President Trump turned around and signed it, and we're very, very thankful and happy to be out of prison on that note. Well, there you go. On the other side of the break, folks, uh, again, feel free to dial in 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. Coming back with the story of the IRP-5 as we break down Alan Bean and the Friends of Justice speaking from the heart. This is AJC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm gonna give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call one 855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay. Call 1-855-529-4252. It is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. How often does our justice system get it wrong? 
convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit. A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. I wanted to be in the military since I was was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody, it'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families.
United States of America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. In fact, the U.S. hosts more prison inmates than all other developed nations combined. As of 2010, the world population was over 6.8 billion people, with an estimated 9.8 million in jail. This figure, compiled by the International Center for Prison Studies, refers both to individuals held in jail awaiting trial and inmates serving time after sentencing. So there are 9.8 million human beings on planet Earth living inside of cages that we know of. In 2010, the U.S. was home to about 309 million people, 4.5% of the world's total population, but housed 23% of the world's prisoners. So take a moment to think about what this means. It means we imprison more people than enormous autocratic countries like China. We imprison more people than Russia. Compared to the size of our population, our rate of imprisonment dwarfs our closest allies, like the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. As of 2010, there were over 1.6 million post-trial inmates serving sentences in America's state and federal facilities. This number does not include those being detained pre-trial or those on probation. The most unique feature of incarceration in America is the large and active role of our federal government. In most countries, crime is reacted to at the local or regional level, whereas the American government finances and legislates a significant portion of law enforcement at the national level. State governments still do their fair share of incarceration, though. California and Texas incarcerate more than other states with over 171,000 inmates each. Florida is a close third with over 103,000 prisoners. But no single state locks up more people than the federal government with over 208,000 inmates. Perhaps the nickname Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, should be updated. Though I suppose you need to be brave to endure the highest likelihood of incarceration the world has ever known. Prisons are not what we think about when we think of America, and they shouldn't have to be. A free nation shouldn't imprison so many people, and a fiscally responsible nation can't afford to. With close to $40 billion a year in state correctional spending, the financial costs are obvious and staggering alone, but the human costs are often underappreciated. 1.6 million fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of American families are incarcerated. It's time for people to realize that the criminal justice system in America is desperately in need of reform. back ladies and gentlemen to AJC radio tonight as we have really began to show some true facts uh, written by Alan Bean of Friends of Justice uh, I'll tell you what who wrote the facts of the injustice suffered by the IRP5 and I'll tell you what as we have begun to roll the pages back and take a look back in time uh, it is crystal clear of the abuse done by federal judge Christine Arguello, AUSA Matthew Kirsch, and John Walsh, who were all part of this really uh, uh, behavior just was unethical and clear abuse. Also, Sunetta Hazra as well. Uh, also, part of this scheme to really bring these men down. Uh, I'll tell you what, 
uh, you failed in one part. These men are free tonight, and they have a voice, and we're going to hear their voice tonight as we have thus far. And Kendrick, I believe you wanted to add some information uh, to this discussion. Go ahead. Well, I want to add, as, as we're going over Bean's report, and you hear from all the uh, other comments prior on the strength of the software that the Silk software was and how effective it was, but I also want to remember, uh, bring to our attention how Alan Bean, how this case started, and how he went in, he went in really thorough, and I think it's a good read about how uh, there's an attorney uh, in Denver. He's a very powerful attorney and used to be an assistant uh, U.S. attorney named Greg Goldberg. Now, Greg Goldberg initiated uh, the basically the case on IRP with one caveat. He he never seen the software. He never we never even did business with uh, Greg Goldberg. And and uh, Alan Bean goes into how he jumps into he said in his eyes IRP was a bogus business, only pretending to develop software so they could defraud staffing companies. A question, Kenneth, real quick. This gentleman did not work for the U.S. Attorney's Office? No. When he made, when, so he, he basically brought a complaint to the U.S. Attorney's Office not being an officer of the, uh, 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 employee of, of the court. Correct. Is that at, correct? At the time, he was a private attorney. And if I'm not mistaken, he was working for the law firm Holland and Hart. So this man, as a private citizen, wakes up one morning and says, you know what? I think I'm going to go after these African-American folks and, and, and tank them, and let, let's just do what we can. Can any citizen cannot go into a U.S. attorney's office or a DA's office and say, look, I'd like you to bring charges against this one well, or that one? Well, this, in my mind, this is the modern-day Black Wall Street because you can't burn down our city because we didn't have a city. So right. let's indict these businessmen, these black businessmen, and, and say, hey, you know what? They're not even, they're not even developing software. I mean, you have to remember that the search warrant by the FBI agent John Smith was granted on his belief that this is purported software. But he never in anywhere in his investigation said, well, I asked him, let me see the software. He never even seen the software. And, and this is Dave Banks. I want to make a point to that. Now, in the search warrant affidavit, uh, he interviewed Melissa McRae. Melissa McRae was worked for the FBI's chief information, the CIO's office of the FBI. She attended a demonstration. In the interview, and her, well, along with, I think it was four other senior FBI officials from justice in Washington, uh, from, the, from headquarters in Washington, attended the presentation. And her words, and it's in the affidavit, uh, she tried to minimize the software, but she said, well, um, it looked like it'd be usable in an FBI field office. Well, if it's usable to run an FBI field office, technology, uh, and obviously she got that wrong because it's enterprise class software, not a division or, or department, but uh, a single area of a company. Uh, it, is, it was developed enterprise class. If it can be run in a single FBI office, why can't it run in all the FBI offices? Right. But this was in the search warrant affidavit, but yet, he still proceeded that IRP was a purported software company with full knowledge that uh, this senior FBI official working for the IT, senior IT official in the FBI had seen the software. And one final note is he also received three weeks before the raid, 
as I mentioned earlier, we had federal agents working, three of them working for the software that came via a referral from Congress to the head of the FBI in Denver. We're not people committing a crime. It aren't calling the FBI to come work and agents to come work for the company. Let me ask you a question, David. So my understanding was is that when this every law enforcement agency pretty much of the federal government was in session and looking at this software, correct? When you guys went to Washington, D.C., right? Yes, for the federal, it was called the Federal Investigative Case Management System Initiative. Uh, and that particular initiative, uh, it was a joint Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice initiative, where they were seeking a single case management solution that could that the entire federal law enforcement, uh, every agency in the federal law enforcement could work on as their system, although they, they would still have autonomy over their particular data, but it would make sharing information much more effective. And uh, at that presentation, five, four or five members of, from the FBI's IT in, in Washington, uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, Secret Service, Border Patrol, U.S. Marshals, all of them were in attendance for that presentation. Well, but say, we were a purported software. Uh, listen, very, listen. Let me be clear on this, folks. And, Clint, I'm coming to you on your point. Uh, what's bizarre about this, do you think Washington, D.C. is compiling these high uh, departments to come and see some software that happens to be fake or Plato or some type of illusion of reality? Why do you bring the top brass to see this software? And why is it that a citizen goes into a, a U.S. attorney's office and his first statement is that these guys are not doing good business or this is not a proper business, it sounds like to me a conspiracy theory to stop this business and to the Melissa uh, lady that you named uh, who was in Washington as well and saw this. Is that correct? That's correct. October 28, 2004. I remember it vividly. I gave the presentation. Cliff, and then Clint, I'm coming to you. Go ahead, Cliff. Yeah, just to go back to Kendrick's point about uh, Greg Goldberg and him being a just a you know a normal member of the community, you have to understand how a issue is brought to uh, uh, a U.S. attorney, how it gets to be okay. We're going after, we're going to impanel a grand jury, and we're going after an indictment. First, a person that has an issue and think there's some type of federal crime going on. They report that to the FBI. The FBI then goes out, does some sort of due diligence to say, we found circumstantial evidence that says, yes, there is most likely a crime going on here. We need to take this up to our boss and see if we can get an, a, a grand jury in panel. When their boss at the FBI, usually their uh, special agent in charge says, yes, looks like you have something here. Let me talk to the people that are over in the Justice Department that are above us, the assistant U.S. attorneys, and see what they think about impaneling a grand jury on this evidence that we have against this company. That is when it goes to the assistant U.S. attorney's office and says, look, my agents, they did research. They found evidence. They have some, uh, some witnesses that says this person or this entity, this company, is probably most likely committing a crime. Here's what I have. You look it over and tell me if we should go after it. Do we need to get a grand jury and see if this is enough to try to bring charges? 
That is when a grand jury is impaneled once all of that legwork has been done. The case of, of IRP Solutions was done totally backwards. How does it go from the prosecutor, Matthew Kirsch and Sunita Hazra, they get their information from Greg Goldberg. I remember it was a hand-delivered letter. Right, a hand-delivered letter from a, a citizen at a private law firm comes in and says, hey, you need to prosecute these guys, not, oh, I think I might have some. You need to prosecute these guys. The prosecutors then take that information and go to the FBI saying, hey, basically I got a, a little note here from my buddy. Go find me something on these people. The whole process was done absolutely backwards. You don't start at the assistant U.S. attorney's office and then push information down to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Well, They're supposed to be the one investigating to see if a crime happened. Well, it speaks to the culture of the U.S. attorney's office. They should never fit. Nobody should ever feel comfortable doing what this gentleman did and trying to tell the U.S. attorney's office to prosecute these men in business. The fact that they felt uh, the gentleman felt comfortable in bringing that. He should have been stopped at the front door. Get out of here. Because that's not how things are done. They couldn't say that because they are corrupt in what they did. And we said it before. I'll say it now. David, I'm going to come right back to you. Uh, this was a bogus process from day one. From the fact when that man took a letter into the U.S. Attorney's Office, it should have been, and nothing should have even been considered. That's if we were in a perfect world. But in the world of corruption, of bias, of all the things that the IRP-5 have suffered, this is protocol. This is normal behavior. I'm going to get Clint, David, and then want to get your thoughts. Clint, go ahead. Yeah, uh, this is, this is a, a travesty. Um, the, the prosecutor knew, uh, John Smith knew, that this was not a purported software company. They actually had to tell an untruth to the judge because they knew that it was not a purported software company because they had an affidavit from the FBI, uh, former FBI agents who worked for the company. They also knew that we had six existing customers using operational use of the software in the field, including Dr. Michael Brown, who's teaching it at Greater Southeast Missouri University at the master's level, criminal investigations level one and two, using our software. So they knew it was not a purported software company. David? Now, uh, I'll put a couple of interesting facts in here. Now, you're going to see a little of the, of the filthy underbelly here and the uh, improper activities that were going on between the FBI and Mr. Goldberg. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, Goldberg hand-delivers a letter to his buddy who he recently left the U.S. Attorney's Office within the last year or two. He decides to go back and say, we need to be prosecuted. Well, um, what's interesting about Goldberg is nobody ever knew really how he got involved. Uh, in his letter to the U.S. attorney, he's, he's already drawn conclusions. He's made, he uses terms such as, in each case, the IRP-5, he called them perpetrators, refused to repay the wages paid by victims to the perpetrators, so-called workers. So obviously, so he's already drawing conclusions that the people working for the company are so-called workers, not legitimate workers. Now, another strange thing that you see in his letter is he talks about 
our activities with staffing companies. And then he, he says, well, this seemingly unusual arrangement, specifically talking about uh, to provide temporary employees to staffing companies, he said this seemingly unusual arrangement is not uncommon in the, in the, in the staffing industry with vendor companies often engaging, paying, and managing temp- temporary workers on behalf of other companies. Well, if it's not illegal, why are you talking right. to the U.S. attorney right. that we need to be prosecuted? Um, and he, a few areas in his letter, he keeps saying, well, this is not unusual in the staffing industry. Again, he says, procuring temporary labor from one company to lease it to another company is not unusual in the, in the staffing industry and therefore did not raise any suspicion. There's, there's nothing to raise suspicions about. These are legitimate uh, staffing industry transactions that were even confirmed by, by Andrew Alberelli, who was an expert witness and owned the multi-million dollar staffing company. We did nothing illegal. And for Greg Goldberg, we don't know who he was working for. Right. Was he working for one of the big companies? I don't know. Who was he working for? And, and why does he feel he needs to go in as a crony? If you probably would ask him, uh, uh, he's concerned about justice in these mm-hmm. companies. He's not concerned about that. Nope. So he went into these companies and decided he was going to work on somebody's behalf and get his buddy at the U.S. Attorney's Office to bring, uh, to bring charges. And Bean uh, said it perfectly in his thing. He said, generally, federal prosecutors don't get involved with the case until the FBI provides them with documented evidence of wrongdoing. Bean goes on to say that the IRP investigation worked in reverse. And then he goes on to talk about Goldberg. How IRP came to Goldberg's attention, Bean says, remains a mystery. Uh, He may have been approached by an executive of a staffing company. And some of these staffing companies were seeking civil remedies, which was appropriate in our case, not a criminal case that the government brought. It was obvious based on him uh, to be, being able to put together a coherent theory that uh, we had not committed a crime. Well, it sounds like to me, if you think that Mr. Goldberg was independent in this effort, I can guarantee you he was not. If you think the, David Banks said he did the, the actual presentation of the software with the high ups of law enforcement, you better believe the word was out about RP solutions. Then you have the people that are who they call haters, envious of what these men have attained and what they have done. This is, this is not an independent wake up in the morning, leave my front door, and deliver a letter to the U.S. Attorney's Office. There's no telling the number of people that are behind the scenes that was a part of this conspiracy to bring RP Solutions down. David, go ahead. Yeah, now, uh, now we, we're looking for a documentary, obviously, on this case. Now, we've looked at Discovery. Now, one of the key things in Discovery was the FBI agent, lead FBI agent, John Smith, there's a fax uh, transmission, a fax cover page transmission, where he is uh, sending the Gazette article that was published, uh, it, well, the article that was published about the raid on IRP Solutions He's sending that over to Goldberg. There's, a, there's another case where the FBI agent John Smith is telling a staffing company who he's allegedly dealing with in this, in, in this so-called criminal case, he's telling that staffing agent 
staffers from the staffing company to contact Goldberg. Well, Goldberg doesn't work for the federal government. Thank you. He's not conducting a federal investigation. Why are, is all the information being coming through the FBI and then funneled back to Goldberg? It definitely makes his, his involvement uh, highly suspicious and, and, uh, and worthy of question. Uh, Demetrius? Yeah, one of the another note we want to bring to forward is as this case was brought in reverse, they were told, what, they had another uh, person that we did and signed a promissory note to, Sunnyside uh, Temporary Agency, and they said, this is a civil matter. He even went to the FBI uh, uh, and spoke with the head officer in Denver, and we had it in court, and to Will's point, we tried to bring that up in our defense that says the FBI, the lead agent in Denver, John Smith was an agent, not the lead agent, in Colorado Springs, working the case, and she said this is a civil matter, and the FBI will not do anything with it. How do you go back in turn and get a criminal case when the, one of the lead officers in Denver that outranks this John Smith in Colorado Springs says there is no case here? Well, this is a, listen, this is a conspiracy, a effort, a premeditated effort to bring our peace solutions down and the fact of the matter is, RP Solutions, the RP5, created software that had never been seen before. If you think the people behind closed doors were not plotting, this is sick, to sick as it gets. If you think they were not plotting behind closed doors, how do we stop these guys? How do we bring them down? Because everybody's raving about the software that's coming out of RRP Solutions and the RRP5. What is this? And that is what I believe motivated Mr. Goldberg with anybody else that was a, didn't want to come forward. How many meetings happened behind closed doors in an effort to bring the RRP Solutions company down and to stop them, especially after the demonstration, the presentation that David Banks gave of the software? This is reality, folks. If you think this does not happen, it, it most certainly does. And there's no other explanation you can come up with than some people had a problem with this company, with six people, now five, came together and says, so you got the big companies, their egos are not at the door. Well, we're, uh, we're uh, this company or that company. We have 1,500 employees or we got this. But you're doing nothing. The IRP solution saw something, created something that could not be touched. That is why these men were sought out to bring down. Make no mistake about it. And where's Mr. Ron Lee of the Observer? You, you, uh, you weren't aware. You said you conducted an investigation. I don't think you were aware of these facts. Where are you at? What type of investigation are you doing? Investigating what the government said? That's, exa that's exactly what we're dealing with here. I'm investigating what the government says, and whatever the government says is what I'm going to report. He, these are facts. They're in discovery, they're in evidence, they're irrefutable, inarguable, and there's nothing you can do with them except accept them as true because, because, because yeah. they are true and, and the evidence is clean and indisputable. No, without question. And Mr. Lee, I'll tell you what, if there was a way, he should be locked up. When you set out to defraud anyone and over a certain dollar figure, this man came in with a disguise. This is a premeditated act. Mr. Lee, Ron Lee, the U.S. Observer, 
began to put the pieces in place how he could take money from these families and give you a story, I believe, in the IRP5, or these men have been done wrong. Just give, cut me a check for $10,000. You took that off the food table. You took it from families who sacrificed to pull that amount of money together because you said you believed in these men and you robbed them. You should be locked up, Mr. Lee. You have every reason to be concerned about your facade reputation. Your reputation that you believe to be good is a facade. It's a disgrace that you represent any publication and do what you did to the IRP solution and to their families is a disgrace and something needs to be done about it. William, your thoughts? You know, just real quick, as the guys were talking, I want, I want the listeners to understand the significance of the software. I mean, we, we, we're sitting here in this COVID age and people are collaborating. They're doing things remotely. This software allowed agencies to share this information, information that is needed. They, you know, and that's the thing, the significance of it. So when you look at these large agencies being able to share information with each other on criminal behavior, activity, terrorism, terrorism on campus yards, possible uh, you know, people that are coming into our country, to share this information, I think that's critical that we should look at that now as we're sitting at home in the midst of COVID, sharing information over the Internet with each other, with our teammates remotely. Think about the significance of that in hindsight of 9-11. That's what this software today is capable of doing. Today it is capable of doing that. And these guys built it. No, without question. And uh, listen, ladies and gentlemen, Believe it or not, we're just getting started. On the IRP5 story, answer one question. This is a question that any person would have. Why? Why? If we are about, or this is the picture that's painted in corporate America, in the United States, the land of the home, I mean, the home of the land and the free, of the, of the free well, guess what? Does that apply to everybody? I said once, I'll say it again. Unequal justice is what runs this country. You can say what you want. You can turn the other way. We're talking about five men at one point was excited about what they were doing. You know what they were doing? Embracing the entrepreneur spirit in this country. Little did we know that doing that made you a target because you worked so hard and came up with a software that had never been seen before. How is it through the, the most powerful entities of the United States government, how do they come together to bring six men down, now known as the RP5? and locked these gentlemen up for eight years. That's not normal protocol. At least that's what I didn't think was protocol. But we're finding this is the culture of the criminal justice system in this country. A very special thanks, folks. Listen, tune in next week, the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 
on AJC Radio. And make no mistake, Sunita Hazra, AUSA Matthew Kirsch, US, former U.S. Attorney John Walsh, AJC and a Just Cause organization will expose your corruption. We will not rest. We will not tire till justice is found for the IRP-5 and IRP solutions. Tune in next Thursday. And if you have had any type of issue, ladies and gentlemen, if you've been done wrong by this U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, as the gentleman that called me today, contact the Just Cause organization, and we will let your story and your voice to be heard. It is time that we lift our voice as advocates for justice, that we make a difference as we seek justice and declare the names of the IRP-5. Till next time, America, good night and God bless. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. My name is David Banks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. When they wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff, sometimes they didn't want to do it. Strange to me. I think it's still strange. It just absolutely makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And, and then all of a sudden your whole life is ripped apart. Justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to send to jail. Ladies and gentlemen of America, what is going on when innocent men get locked away? Ladies and gentlemen, have you stopped to ask the question, where is justice? It's far away. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. Uh, it became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were um, collaborating or working with the prosecution. We constantly hear in the news, every week you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. There you have it. Tough questions in need for answers. Lady Justice has gone missing. Where is she? Is this happening in America? The American dream has turned into a nightmare. Crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America, we look for the answer.